0: Listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero podcast. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. How are you? I can't complain. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero newsletter. This is the Non-Zero podcast. You are Jessica Chan Weiss, the Michael J. Zack, I believe, professor of China and Asia Pacific Studies at Cornell. That's uh, right. You you uh, pretty recently finished a stint on the uh, policy planning staff at uh, the department of state where I think they do long range, like visionary thinking, right?
1: Right. I was a council on foreign relations fellow while on sabbatical from Cornell and, and spent my stint there.
0: Okay. And speaking of the council on foreign relations, they published the august journal foreign affairs where you recently had uh, a, a, an article that, that justly was uh, widely discussed called, um, well, let me first, I'm going to mention your book because it's relevant. Sweet. Powerful Patriots, Nationalist Protests in China's Foreign Relations, um, published by Oxford University Press. But the, uh, the, uh, the journal piece was called uh, The China Trap, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Perilous Logic of Zero-Sum Competition. We're going to talk about that and about, broadly speaking, uh, the China question, uh, to what extent and in what ways does it threaten American interests and other interests in the world? uh, and, uh, and what should and shouldn't be done about it. Um, I wanted to start off with a question that, um, uh, if you want to dodge, you can, or if you want to hold it off until the end of the conversation, after you think about it a while you can, cause I didn't warn you about it, but, um, uh, it's about the, the perception gap. I was going to ask really two questions. If there's, if there's one thing you think, Americans don't understand about how China views the world, one consequential thing. And here, Americans could mean, you know, grassroots Americans or foreign policy elites. Uh, and when I say how China views the world, it could be the grassroots view, the leadership's view. Um, I was going to ask, uh, what would that one consequential misunderstanding be? And then I was going to also reverse the question and say, uh, if you, you know, if if you think there's something that isn't isn't well understood in China about perspectives from America, if any of that makes sense. Now I give you the option of uh, taking the fifth, um, just dodging it entirely, uh, asking if we could put it off till the end of the conversation, or going ahead and diving into that.
1: I'll take a stab. I think that there's, uh, you know, we talk about China and Beijing a lot, but there's actually a lot of, I think, uncertainty even inside China about where China is going. And so, I think that one of the big things that Americans maybe don't appreciate enough about China is really the range of potential directions and trajectories that, that China itself could follow. I'm not just talking about China's economic growth and whether it will like stagnate or collapse. Um I'm also talking about you know what does China want in the world? And I think that that's really a moving target. Um, it's not something that I wrote about in the piece, but it's very much a part of my ongoing work and um, thinking about uh, you know what it is. Uh, that China's, how domestic politics in China affect what it seeks in the world and and to what extent that poses a challenge to uh, the existing international order.
0: Okay. And so you think even within the leadership, there's a certain amount of uncertainty or flexibility?
1: I don't know if flexibility is exactly the right word. I would say that there's a very much of a presentism. There is a, like, what are the challenges that need to be dealt with today? I mean, that's very much true also in the United States um, where, you know, the long range planning, even though it's something that we aspire to, and certainly the Chinese government aspires to and does a great deal of effort to plan, you know, if every five years, what's the plan? Nonetheless, there's a lot of kind of wiggle room left in there, kind of, you know, these are broad aspirations, but exactly what are the practical steps that are needed to get to that destination? I think there's a lot more uh, kind of, the phrases, you know, cross the river by feeling for stones, there's still a fair amount of oh, what works. Mm-hmm. Um and sort of what is take one step, figure out what's the reaction to that, then take another step and you know adjust along the way. So there's constantly this sort of hedging. And what that means is that there's a lot of internal kind of what the Chinese would call contradictions, but there's a lot of internal cross currents um, that make it very difficult, I think, for us to say with any certainty, you know, like this is where China's going, or you know, we don't even know. Uh, I think China's intentions, long run. Um, okay. I think we should be a lot more agnostic um, than than we sometimes. So seem there's to. more
0: improvising going on. It sounds like. Invasion. I think that's right.
1: That's
0: right. Um, okay. Well, let's, I'll try to uh, follow that theme through the conversation and, and and get back to that. And is there anything you'd say about the the reverse version of the question, things about America that are misunderstood in China?
1: I would say that you know there's a really strong
0: streak of suspicion
1: um, that I think is, you know, to some extent warranted, but by no means universally shared um, amongst Americans that, you know, I don't think it is necessarily every American's purpose to keep China down or to weaken the Chinese Communist Party. But uh, that streak of concern, some might even say paranoia, I think has grown larger and certainly there are things that the United States has done to feed that and to Mm -hmm. affirm that suspicion. Um, But, you know, the United States is also, you know, a country in ferment. And I think that there are a lot of potential possibilities um, that really resist this kind of fatalism on both sides. It doesn't need to be uh, Mm -hmm. a new Cold War when we can, I think, collectively, if we were to take incremental steps back from the brink, could imagine a different future.
0: Mm -hmm. And there's a larger historical narrative I gather in China about the West holding it down, going way back, right? Absolutely. Um, okay. The uh, one one uh, question about uh, the near future in Chinese politics. So we're recording this in in very late September. It won't run right away, but I know at some point in October, Xi Jinping comes up for. Uh, they'll decide whether he gets a third term. People in America are talking about, as if it's it's a sure thing. And some are talking as if once he's got the third term, he's kind of emperor for life or something. That's it. I, I don't know. Is there any, uh, how much indeterminacy, if any, is there in this? Is this like a, like a done deal?
1: I think all signs point to that. It's uh, certainly that he's going to get a third term. There's a long distance between a third term and emperor for life. And so uh, I don't know that we will, necessarily see uh, Xi Jinping come out from this emboldened, strengthened. He could be, some have speculated, could be a little bit more constrained, uh, get a third term, but not necessarily um, emerge from this uh, so much stronger. So I think there's a lot of indeterminacy, but that indeterminacy is within a kind of a narrower band, um, Mm -hmm. well short of,
0: you know, you know, some
1: fanciful illusions of, you know, collapse or, you know, Dictatorship, mm-hmm. totalitarian dictatorship,
0: and is the I mean historically uh, two terms has been the max. Has that been a norm, just a norm, or like a law that he somehow changed or something?
1: Well, there was an effort, uh, a successful effort, to revise the constitution to remove that uh, that norm or log against uh, an additional term, mm-hmm. and so that was a norm that was institutionalized under his predecessors. Um, you know, of course, it took time for that to to come into place. Certainly, you know, Mao Zedong didn't rule in that way. Mm-hmm. And so this is something that, uh, you know, emerged over the last couple of decades,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it's been uh, dispensed with really. And and that's in part why people have, I think, seen that even though there is a lot of kind of a groundswell of unhappiness with some of the policies um, that Xi Jinping has adopted, all the institutional markers are are of continued strength
0: under his mm-hmm. leadership. What is the what is the discontent about? Uh, there, there is there there has been growing grassroots discontent over the last few years. I would say
1: it's it's not just grassroots. I mean, there's elite discontent as well. I mean, you, nobody cracks down on uh, you know as many officials as he has without generating some discontent. But it's not just that. It's also the concern about the draconian uh, crackdowns on COVID, uh, mm-hmm. the sort of zero COVID or dynamic zero policies that he's put in place and really kept in place, uh, rather than relying on mRNA vaccines or such um, that could provide a, a way out uh, of this kind of policy. Now, there may be some reasons for keeping that in place that have to do with avoiding the kinds of deaths that, that we've experienced here in the United States and elsewhere. Um, but that's coming at a significant cost to uh, you know, economic growth and, and the budgets of, of local officials. So you know, there is a ways in which. Uh, Kind of this this stability above all else approach that that Xi Jinping has taken has some real downsides that I think are generating a lot of um, discontent.
0: But for now, it looks like he's going to weather it. Uh, so um, let's talk about your your piece in foreign affairs. I'm sure uh, the name Xi Jinping will come up again in the conversation. Um, I'm going to read from the uh, the first paragraph of the piece. Uh, first sentence his competition with China has begun to consume U.S. Foreign policy. Then uh, the, near the bottom of this first paragraph says the current course will not just bring indefinite deterioration of the U.S.-Chinese relationship and a growing danger of catastrophic catastrophic conflict. It also threatens to undermine the sustainability of American leadership in the world and the vitality of American society and democracy at home. Uh, that that sounds like a lot of downside. Um, it, 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 is it possible to characterize, broadly speaking, what is wrong with our paradigm? Or would you rather just take these these, these issues uh, like one by one?
1: The short answer or the broad paradigm is that I think we're mostly focused on beating China and not on what it is that we want, irrespective of that goal. And of course, you know, pushing back and countering China may be a portion of achieving what it is that we want, this affirmative vision. For how the United States relates to the world, but I think that that emphasis is secondary. The stronger muscle here um, is really on the effort to outcompete and counter, um, without a fixed sense of where it is we are going and, and how do we manage mm-hmm. those risks of confrontation.
0: And and what do you think? Uh, kind of the sense of threat is in America. In other words, what what is the most widespread fear about what will happen if if we in some sense lose to China? I mean, well, first of all, in what sense? Would, I mean, there's economic competition. There's competition for global influence. These are different and related things. There's competition for military supremacy as opposed to softer forms of influence exertion in in the world. I, I gather you're talking about us striving to stay ahead on, on like all of these fronts with the idea being that some peril looms if we uh, fail to go three for three there or something.
1: I think that's right. I think that there's a there's no sense of uh, you know what would be enough. I think that there's a a sense that as long as we are ahead of China in each and every domain on each and every metric, then we'll be okay. But there's I think that that overarching impetus makes it hard to prioritize. First of all, where do we need to um, stay ahead? Or even if we want to stay ahead, like where are we going, and how do we um, avoid Triggering the exact same kinds of instincts on the Chinese side, which is well. Then the real risk is that, of course, Beijing also concludes that the only way for Beijing to feel secure is to beat the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and given the evolving, I think, terrain of power and influence, that we may not necessarily come out ahead. Uh, and certainly, the costs I think may be immense, particularly in terms of our our comparative advantages in terms of retaining an open and attractive uh, society, which is very much not
0: China's strength. Okay. Let's talk about the first danger you list, the growing danger of catastrophic conflict. Um, You know, there has been obviously a certain amount of tension in in that region. Uh, I mean, tension between China and some of its neighbors over territorial disputes. The issue of Taiwan has loomed very large lately what kind of what catastrophic conflict scenarios are you most worried about, and how do you think we're uh, we're in danger of making them more likely?
1: My biggest concern is Taiwan. This is an issue that is uh, you know really uh, rapidly, I think on an escalator toward crisis and potential conflict, uh, not just because of things that we are doing, of course, this is there are long run Demographic and political trends on Taiwan uh, that are moving the island further and further away from a, a Chinese identity, and you also have the, you know, Beijing's heavy-handed crackdown in Hong Kong, making the prospects of unification under something like a one country two systems uh, a model more and more repugnant to democratic voters on Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Those are sort of the structural uh, trends and recent developments. And in response, Beijing has. Uh, stepped up its its pressure campaign to deter what it sees as steady by steady and a salami slicing by the United States and Taiwan, which the United States, I would say, for its part, really sees as an effort to bolster a deterrence in response to China's increasingly coercive uh, pressure campaign against. So, the so you're
0: saying this salami slicing thing is something we see as deterrence. I think that's it, right. And what, and what exactly do you mean by the salami slicing? What what kinds of things?
1: What I mean is, efforts that we take to bolster Taiwan's defense, as well as its morale and its public international profile and support, while still maintaining officially uh, an unchanged uh, stance, which is a one China policy framework Mm -hmm. and non support for Taiwan independence. Those are the sort of parameters. But even within those parameters, there's been, I would say, especially under the Trump administration, but continuing a bit although at a less accelerated pace today, uh, efforts to to do more with Taiwan. Um, and those are seen in Beijing as sort of U.S. efforts to support what they see as a, a kind of steady uh, separation between the island and the mainland, which could be headed in the direction of ultimately
0: independence. So that includes weapons transfers, I assume, from the U.S. to Taiwan. And what other things uh, are being taken as provocative by China.
1: It's it's not quite so much as the weapons transfers, although those, those certainly are something that has always aggravated Beijing. It's more, I think, the public uh, expressions of symbolic support that seem to signal uh, an incremental upgrade in mm-hmm. the kind of what were once unofficial relations between the United States and Taiwan and between Taiwan and other. Uh, countries around the world. So it's the renaming of Taiwan's uh, representative office from the Taipei uh, office to Taiwan. It is uh, changing the nature of the contact guidance, first removing restrictions or uh, guidance for how the United States uh, interacted with representatives from Taiwan, Mm -hmm. and then under the Biden administration reinstating those, um, but with a more expanded set of, of possibilities. Um, and ultimately, you do have you know, politicians, not in the government right now, but suggesting that we should offer right now diplomatic recognition to right. Taiwan, which would be effectively recognizing them as an independent state.
0: Right. So that's not helpful. So we should maybe just for people who aren't that conversant in the history. Uh, you know, when Nixon established relations with China, the deal we did was to, as you said, the one China policy. We acknowledge, we, we do not recognize Taiwan as a sovereign nation. We still don't. We acknowledge that, yes, Taiwan and mainland China are one, as, you know, back in history, they, they were, I guess, before civil war. Um, and, uh, a, a, you know, attendant on that, uh, we there, there's been a certain amount of strategic uh, ambiguity when people... Ask well, would you come to Taiwan's aid if uh, if China invaded? Because part of our one China policy is uh, the eventual integration of Taiwan and and, and the rest and, and mainland China is fine so long as it's done peacefully. And then people say, well, what if it's not done peacefully? There's invasion. Traditionally, uh, we've been ambiguous about that. Well, we don't rule out helping Taiwan. We're not guaranteeing it. Uh, Biden seems to have changed that. Now he he, he said four times now. We would come to China's aid, which would be a change. Every time he says it, the White House kind of walks it back. But I assume this looms large in China's perception of what they consider u s. provocation. what's your What's your take on that? I mean, more and more people are saying, "Look, let's face it. Biden has changed the policy and 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 the White House, you know, is increasingly not credible in claiming otherwise,
1: so I think it's too early to say that Biden has effectively changed the policy. the The policy, So first of all, there's two important components of the policy. One is the one China framework, and the other is strategic ambiguity, which rests upon deterring unilateral changes by either side to the Mm -hmm. status quo. And so Biden's comments really are about the latter, which is, you know, what are the conditions under which we would come to uh, Taiwan's aid in terms of sending troops? And what he basically said, and I think there was a little bit of a garble, he said that, you know, in the event of an unprecedented attack, but what I think what would be consistent with policies is that you said in the event of an unprovoked attack, the United States would fight. And if it's unprovoked, then that means it was a unilateral change that Beijing launched. Um, so you think he, mi-
0: he misspoke? He had the word unprovoked in mind and said un- unprecedented? I think so.
1: I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. And that still leaves space for the second half of strategic ambiguity, which is that we also oppose unilateral changes by the Taiwan side, which... If you'll uh, note, came out and was, uh, you know, cleaned up afterwards, and also was, I think, um, in I, there was a statement at the United Nations too. I think it was Biden's statement at the UN General Assembly, which clarified that or or um, affirmed that the United States opposes unilateral changes to the okay. status quo from either side. So that's really important. I also wanted to go back to the One China policy, which is, I think, it's important to note is that we didn't. We haven't recognized China's claim to Taiwan. What we have done in the 1970s uh, is acknowledge the Chinese position that uh, there is, uh, that all Chinese on both sides of the Taiwan Strait maintain that there is one China and Taiwan is a part of China. So we don't actually say that that's our position. We mm-hmm. say that we acknowledge the I Chinese see. position. Okay. And at the time, both sides of the Strait actually believed both of them in one China. Mm-hmm. What's changed really with Taiwan's democratization is that. People on Taiwan no longer believe in one China. And under the current administration, that one China is pretty
0: anethical. Okay. Uh, and is it your sense increasingly that um, that Xi Jinping is so determined to not let the prospect of unification slip away that, you know, invasion, I, I mean, if the status quo, you know, as you said, there is not enthusiasm on Taiwan for integration, less than there used to be. If Assuming that remains the same, uh, do you think he would uh, go ahead and invade within a matter of years in any event? Or is it the case that uh, kind of by making a big deal of it, you know, to the extent that we highlight the issue with the various things he considers provocative, we're actually making more likely something that might not be inevitable otherwise.
1: I think you had said it exactly right, which is that I don't think that Xi Jinping wants to invade Taiwan or is looking for an excuse. This is an incredibly uh, difficult and will be, you know, catastrophically costly option. But I think that you know, if pushed, comes to shove, and he felt like Taiwan were imminently uh, to become independent or declare independence, that he would fight even a war that. He thought the People's Liberation Army might lose. I and mean, so I, and I think many other experts don't believe, uh, and I refer you to a recent CSIS poll, don't believe that Xi Jinping has sent a hard deadline uh, for an invasion. So it's not at all a foregone conclusion that this is going mm-hmm. to happen. But there is a risk that actions that we take in the name of bolstering deterrence and in the name of supporting Taiwan actually feed Beijing's sense of urgency to do something before it's too late. And that's what I worry about.
0: And what are the things that you think are most kind of ill-advisedly provocative in that uh, domain that the U.S. Ha- has done?
1: Well, first of all, I think that we're looking at a, you know, a 2024 uh, election cycle here in the United States. And as I said, uh, you know, Secretary, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is already giving speeches calling for, and on Twitter calling for the United States to recognize Taiwan. That would be flagrantly uh, overturning the one China policy um, in ways that I think would uh, set us on uh, a course for war in the near term. Um, You know, short of that, I think there are other things that are more likely to prompt the kinds of military maneuvers that we saw, uh, you know, following Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Which you know were not aimed at invasion; they weren't even a blockade, but they were uh, military signaling to put the squeeze on Taiwan to demonstrate that China could, you know, using the tools that it has, incrementally uh, erode the status quo to Beijing's advantage mm-hmm. um, in ways that you know make it more threatening and more difficult uh, for Taiwan to to thrive as it has uh, for the last several decades. And so there are you know there's a whole range of different things I think. And of course, there are things that we also need to do to bolster deterrence in terms of doing things quietly uh, to help Taiwan bolster its defenses, to get its uh, military in in some kind of fighting shape, to to be able to hold out, uh, to to put up uh, the civil resistance. There's a whole lot of things that Taiwan hasn't yet to date done. Um, I think after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the message has, I think, gotten louder and, and I think is understood. But still, I think there's there you know months, years away um, from being in a position uh, to do what I think needs to be done. And I think there are people in the U.S. military that say we, you know, if Taiwan, uh, you know, we can't we can't fight you know if Taiwan's not there uh, as well. Whereas if Taiwan doesn't fight, we're not going to be able to save Taiwan either.
0: So you think it does make sense to send uh, the kinds of weapons that? that well the classic metaphor is a porcupine right turn taiwan mm-hmm. into a porcupine that's hard for china to digest and you think a certain amount of that makes sense
1: i do think that a certain amount of that makes sense and i and i think that the, one of the disadvantages of what biden is saying uh, even though i don't think it necessarily changes policy is that it undermines taiwan's incentive to do what it needs to do if it feels like the mm-hmm. united states is going to has the illusion that the united states is going to solve the problem then Mm -hmm. that gives them less incentive to do what they need to
0: do too. Do you worry about the flip side of this where, uh, you know, Putin kind of said that more or less explicitly that the the flip side uh, was, uh, had to, you know, had something to do with the invasion. And by flip side, I mean, if you're sending arms that make the country harder to invade, why not act now? If you're planning, you know, if you think you may need to do it eventually. You, th- you think you that that risk is not not so great as to outweigh the advantage, the deterrent advantage?
1: I mean, I think what you really risk is, you know, an, a spiraling arms race um, and you have to be careful about creating what seem to be like big windows of opportunity where right now Taiwan is defenseless and but in like three years they will be defended. I think mm-hmm. that that's dangerous. But if you're doing it in a kind of incremental way that keeps pace with or maybe gets a little ahead of but, you know, is uh, you know, calibrated appropriately, then you don't, you can kind of mitigate some of those mm-hmm. um, risks.
0: Okay. Now, if you ask why has the U.S. been, you know, what what China calls provocative, but l- leave aside that characterization, you know, somewhat more forceful in its support of Taiwan and in its criticism of, of China and so on. Uh, you know, uh, you get various answers. Some people mention the Taiwan lobby. OK, but there's always been a Taiwan lobby. And I so, and I think, you know, so the question uh, has to become what it why has the ground been more fertile for advocates of these kinds of policies lately? Uh, it, it it and and I, I think there's no doubt that from China's side, there's been a, a sense of greater militancy that. It Doesn't co- coincide exactly with the, with the tenure of Xi Jinping, I guess, but has grown over the last decade or or a bit more, maybe. Um, and and there is a sense of threat from China that you know is in the background of our Taiwan policy, right? There's a sense of threat, not just to Taiwan, but the sense that China is this threat to American interests in in various ways. What what do you? How would you characterize the sense of threat? That has grown in America. What what do you think the big fears are that are that are driving our China policy?
1: Well, a lot of it has to do with changes that have taken place inside China and in China's external behavior. Um, and you know, you could take them discreetly, but add it up, they make it look like, and indeed, China is, you know, more repressive at home and more coercive abroad. Um, and that's you know, expressed itself both, you know, in terms of China's brutal treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang to the kind of crackdown in Hong Kong uh, and to its growing pressure campaign against Taiwan and Taiwan on the international stage. And so a lot of the kind of hardening approach, I think, in the United States to China is really a reaction to uh, what has taken place in China. Of course, much of what has happened in China is also, in turn, a reaction to what leaders in Beijing see as kind of threats to their uh, sovereignty and, and stability. And mm-hmm. so there has been um, this again. Th- there's sort of a mutually accelerating security dilemma, if you will, that's taking place. I think, which makes it hard for both sides to see like what would an off ramp look like, because any kind of restraint is interpreted or is feared to be interpreted uh, as lack of resolve and, and something to be taken advantage
0: of. Okay. Um, so, so a lot of that is is. Uh... Kind of domestic Chinese policy um, that uh, that that is influencing America's um, policy toward china those generally aren't characterized as threats to american interests right there there is i mean I agree they loom large uh, in in the reaction to China, but there's also uh, issues that uh, you know there's a sense of threat in some sense to America, right.
1: Sure. I mean, I think that those issues that I've talked about, you know, whether it's Hong Kong, Taiwan, Xinjiang, are all seen as, you know, egregious abuses that the United States is, you know, the defender of of human rights around the world needs to speak up for and Mm -hmm. stand against. And so a lot of what, you know, even though they're not seen as threats to the homeland, they're nonetheless seen as, you know, challenges to the way the world should work and and how Mm -hmm. countries ought to conduct themselves. I think there's also particularly under the Trump administration there was a very extreme uh version of the characterization of the threat that China posed not only to you know American influence overseas but to you know the very um you know fabric of American society uh both in terms of you know China's trade uh with United States but also uh you know the Chinese communist party's I- influence. And mm-hmm. I think those uh challenges on the CCP influence front have been uh, somewhat overstated. They certainly have been corrosive to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the freedom of expression in terms of, you know, trying to intimidate, uh, you know, NBA, you know, teams into, you know, not speaking out. And, um, you know, so that thing is that those are definitely happening. And there are, you know, small instances of them, you know, trying to shape public opinion to be more, you know, favorable to China and uh, to kind of discourage. Uh, you know, politicians from speaking up against China, but I wouldn't say that these are efforts to subvert American democracy in the way that I think that uh, some some politicians and analysts uh, see the Chinese Communist Party as an existential threat uh, to American right. democracy. What I would say there is that I think that, you know, the existential threat to American democracy is, you know, right here uh, inside our borders. You don't, it's not coming from China uh, per se, but by our
0: own politicians. Well, what about the fear that uh, you know, China wants to encircle us increasingly with a network of authoritarian autocracies or something? or even even if its vision isn't that explicitly aimed at America, that it is trying to to kind of, you know, promulgate its form of governance, uh, and that it's showing signs of success. And, and that's the big uh, threat or a big threat.
1: So here, this is this question of, you know, what does a world safer autocracy look like? How much is China trying to promote its model? I do think that China is sort of advertising its success as a way of burnishing the Chinese Communist Party's legitimacy, primarily at home, but also in diffusing external pressure for what they fear is a kind of an orchestrated effort to uh, undermine the CCP and orchestrate a color revolution. Mm-hmm. But I don't see them doing what, you know, frankly, the United States and the democracies have done for years, which is sort of tie their overseas assistance to political governance conditions. It's, it's the conditions that they attach are, well, you first of all have to recognize China. You don't deal with Taiwan. Um, and then there are various business conditions associated with their lending and such. But they don't have this sort of package of, well, you know, you have to be an autocracy uh, or you have to, you know, you know, stop holding elections in order to no, none of that. Um, and so the, you know, China does have strings attached. They just aren't of this uh, kind of governance kind. Um, and so, you know, even though there are efforts, I think to, you know, train foreign leaders and such, a lot of times these end up looking like junkets that are kind of, you know, trying to burnish networks. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, a lot of not great stuff that's going on, but it isn't really about. Uh, exporting a, a so-called China model of, of political governance, in my view, at least so far. But one of the concerns that I have is that if this sort of ideological competition heats up, we might well see uh, China trying to copy Russia uh, in, you know, trying much more aggressively to intervene or interfere in in democratic politics, believing that the only way for the CCP to be safe uh, is by going uh, on the offensive.
0: Okay, so as of now, you would say China does want to make the world safe for autocracy in the sense that they want to be allowed to to pursue their own form of governance right. and and uh but not in this in the sense um that they want autocracy to dominate the globe they don't they don't feel strongly mm. about that per se uh is that right? Exactly.
1: And so I don't see a zero sum competition between a world safer autocracy and a world safer democracy. Mm-hmm. I actually think that democracy might be safer uh, if autocracies felt a little bit less besieged.
0: Yeah. Well, what are some of the ways in which we may make them feel besieged? I mean, we have this whole uh, democracy summit thing that President Biden made a pretty big deal about. I've seen reporting that that actually did. Uh, did not escape the attention of Chinese leadership, and they weren't at all happy about it. Yeah, first of all, is that true? And what are what are other things that we're doing that, in your view, may not really uh, carry a huge benefit for us, and 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 have the cost of making it more likely that China would uh, get into a frame of mind where they feel that their their only form of defending their own form of governments is to promulgate and support other authoritarian autocracies, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. So I think that this effort to, you know, cast world politics in the framework of autocracies versus democracies um, is, is potentially counterproductive, even if, of course, I want to defend democracy, I want democracies to stand together, but actually by painting authoritarians as the target, you make it harder to work with countries of all stripes to improve their Domestic governance at home, let alone you know, shared challenges that cross borders. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that the summit for democracy prompted a r- response uh, in China, uh, which first of all tried to portray uh, itself, or at least the Chinese Communist Party, tried to portray itself as you know the leaders of a whole-process democracy. They called themselves, um, but it also, I think, uh, helped galvanize the you know February fourth joint statement between Putin and Xi Jinping, and that. Uh, you know, the more that we play up this kind of, you know, democracies in a fight against autocracies, we may not like the kind of the results in terms of fostering, you know, continued uh, strategic uh, cooperation between uh, Xi Jinping and and Putin's
0: Russia. Mm-hmm. And then, what about this, you know, kind of delicate issue of China's domestic policies, including human rights policies? Uh, you know some of which I think certainly the the uh, situation with the Uyghurs, you know, Americans naturally find abhorrent. Um, I I assume that that's that's one thing that China takes as a I mean, you tell me, I don't know. But does it it take that kind of criticism and in some cases, economic sanctions and so on as an an attempt to keep it from, you know, as as just Part of the long list of ways it sees America as attacking its form of governance, right? I mean, it 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 presumably doesn't define what we the, the things we define as grave human rights issues as grave human rights issues, right? Uh, right. That's-
1: right. And so the Chinese Communist Party really sees this through the lens of regime stability, um, and unfortunately, you know, with really you know disastrous consequences for the population of Xinjiang and other minorities inside China. But the question I think we need to ask ourselves is or what are the sets of policies that can really improve the situation on the ground for uh, those in China as well as around the globe? I and mean, if it's the concern, uh, you know right now is is forced labor. you know, what are the ways that we can strengthen our capacity to deal with forced labor in our supply chains, not just going after or presuming, you know guilt until proven innocent, which is sort of the presumption that all goods made in Xinjiang are made with forced labor, Um, but rather, you know, to build a capacity in our own, you know, customs and border patrol to examine, you know, where are these products coming from, and then throughout the supply chain to strengthen the capacity if we don't want to be, you know, supporting these kinds of practices. You know, right now, I don't think we have that. And so what it looks like is an effort selectively to target uh, China and the Xinjiang region in particular, uh, while not Doing very much to address the actual problem, uh, and as it exists not just in China but also in you know the countries in Southeast Asia where you know much of the you know the trade is now going through, Um, and so we look a little bit selective here, and that ends up kind of then being interpreted in China through the lens of you know geopolitics and an effort to
0: keep China down. Okay, Uh, another thing that is seen by some in America as threatening, and I guess as part of uh, this alleged uh strategy of building a network of uh autocracies or authoritarian leaning uh, countries that are sympathetic to china it is this belt and road initiative right uh that that's that, um which i gather is is uh has not worked out as well as china might have hoped correct me if i'm wrong uh but um uh what what's, what do you think is the reality of that and the perception of that in in america
1: well, so first of all, I think it's important to note that whether it's the BRI or China's smart cities projects, uh, you know, China isn't actually, you know, more interested in doing business with, uh, you know, autocracies than democracies. Right. They sell to whomever. And they, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, I think, of course, they are you know, through like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, working with other, uh, you know, less than democratic countries to deal with that they see as, you know, threats of instability and terrorism. But I would say that I wouldn't cast all of China's overseas uh, efforts and initiatives as operating uh, through a, some kind of network of autocracies. That's just not how it's how it's taking okay. shape.
0: And am I right that they are uh, that the policy? You know, they're they're now facing issues where it's looking like they're not going to get their debts repaid and uh, their loans repaid, and and they're kind of revising the policy in midstream.
1: Well, so in, you know, first of all, there's you know less of this overseas lending than had taken place, and they really face what some are calling a creditor trap, which is that you know these countries that can't make you know, good on those loans having trouble doesn't necessarily always put China in a great position to mm-hmm. um, you know and so there are there have been, you know, for example, in Zambia, there was a you know a, a debt deal that, you know, China was forced to you know, negotiate, um, you know, through the auspices of, the, you know, the G20 common framework. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that they're interested in making that kind of a poster child for this because, you know, they don't want to have to do this across the board. Um, you know, but it, I would say that the the concern about debt distress giving China this kind of coercive leverage is still uh, more of a, a fear than necessarily always, um, you know, been born out in reality. And then there are some good scholarship, you know, working on, for example, what happened in Sri Lanka. I would, you know, recommend you to uh, Deborah Brodigam and, and Meg Rithmeyer's work on that, um, where it's it was a lot more complicated uh, than this kind of predatory lending, uh, a picture would
0: present. Yeah, the narrative is that uh, loaning them the money was a trick to to get, China to wind up in possession of a port or something right. is that that's yeah. the simple version narrative and, and right. I've heard that that's not actually exactly right.
1: That was sort of a stylized caricature. <laughs>
0: um, so what about uh, China's Taiwan aside, uh, the 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 kind of somewhat military issues in the region? There are the border disputes. Uh, there's the fact that China has declared a pretty expansive uh, conception of its own territorial waters, so-called nine-dash line. Uh, An international tribunal ruled against China, and China just said, well, tough luck. We're defying the ruling of of the international tribunal. Um, And and so there's tension with various countries, uh, Japan, Vietnam, uh, and maybe Vietnam is an example of how uh, China doesn't necessarily View the world as autocracy versus democracy because because Vietnam is very much an autocracy, right. and yet that's one of the countries they have the most tension with, I gather, in Southeast Asia. Absolutely. Um, the uh, w- w- what's you know we're not imagining it, right? I mean, China is is throwing their weight around. What what is your take on why that is and how we should think of that and respond?
1: Well, I mean, there's you know there's a lot of you know factors that are contributing here i think there's a sense well you know from beijing's perspective that you know they had been relatively restrained and that other countries were starting to do a lot of exploration uh in the south china sea uh and you know in, in some cases you know they needed to get out ahead of uh what was going to be uh, you know a, the delimitations that were going to take place this is in the 2009 kind of period and so that to get out in front of that You know, they started. You know, they filed their map, and so a lot of this is uh, actually—it's not just China moving alone in this area, Um, but of course, China is the—you know—is the elephant in the room. And so, when China acts, it's you know much more concerning than when you know Vietnam or Malaysia you know works with, you know, uh, some foreign multinational to conduct exploration. And so, I think what we're seeing now, uh, you know, is a Chinese effort to you know one consolidate and project power the features that it it held, but is now militarized uh, in the South China Sea, and that has many different functions, but I think it also, uh, among other things, um, you know, it acts as kind of a deterrent, or they see it as a sort of a deterrent to, uh, you know, other parties uh, in the region and to those disputes, um, you know, acting um, in ways that are kind of, again, unilateral. So there's, uh, but this is, again, consistent with China's effort to use coercive power to get uh, to, to, To you know, push back against what it perceives as, uh, you know, challenges to its claims. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, what we've seen in recent years is that not just sort of pushing back, but pushing back really hard so that in the end, China ends up with a stronger position as a result of its reaction to these smaller challenges. And so what, you know, that's been, you know, kind of conducted across the board, whether that's in the East China Sea, over the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands, Um, As this, you know, the 2012 crisis that was precipitated when the Japanese government nationalized the islands or purchased the islands from a private owner, Mm -hmm. you know, China not only reacted, but started to conduct unprecedented patrols to effectively contest Japan's administration. You see the same along the Indian border. Of course, the details are slightly different, but it's sort of this sort of a reaction that's quite sizable um, in ways that fortify China's position and advances their claim not expanding their claim necessarily, but advancing
0: and, and strengthening it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and so various things are happening in reaction to this. Uh, Japan is beefing up its own military. The U.S. is, I gather, making our presence more, maybe more substantial and, I don't know, maybe slightly more assertive. I mean, there, but they're, this whole pivot to Asia concept that goes back years now, uh, and may have been complicated by the Ukraine war, among other things, but still uh, mm. the idea is we should, we should beef up our uh, military presence uh, and so on. Uh, what other, what other things are being done in response to this? And, and of all the things being done in response by the U.S., by uh, regional uh, friends of ours, um, what do you think are the wise ones? And what do you think are the not so wise ones?
1: Mm. So I would say that, a lot of the response has been in the kind of military and security domain. I know a lot of these countries are working more closely with us than they have in the past or have expressed interest in doing so. Um, you know, but there's a, I think, a missing component here, which is the economic link. That you know, many of these countries, their largest trading partner remains China. Um, and they, many of them are looking to the United States to, you know, help provide an economic alternative and really... So far, given the politics of trade in the United States, that's been, I think, up to some extent, hamstrung the kind of economic initiatives that the United States has been able to offer the region. The current incarnation is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which will help to some extent, depending, you know, depending on how it materializes, um, but is not the same as the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership or you know some other uh, initiative that really has market access as part of it. And so, given the state of affairs, I think. Uh, You know, many see, I think, as Evan Feigenbaum said, the United States is like the Hessians of the region. You're sort of the military muscle, but but not really there um, shaping the kind of underlying economic reality, uh, which still really revolves around China.
0: Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, on the Chinese side, in terms of uh, the change in tenor of its kind of stance toward the world, uh, you know, it. Again, I don't think we're imagining things to think that it's gotten more assertive. There's a so-called Wolf Warrior diplomacy, if I've got that term right, which is, you know, I guess means stuff like, you know, talking trash on Twitter and things like that, right? And, and uh, but um, but uh again, they've been regionally assertive and 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 just kind of less uh, a little less shy and and humble uh on on the stage. And one question is why is that uh there is on the one hand xi jinping is a, is a new leader on the other hand i think some of this predates that by a little predates his tenure by a little um there's the question of to what extent it is this is reactive to uh perceived provocations or signs of disrespect from abroad what how would you how would you characterize like why relations have gotten, and of course, COVID was a threshold, right? Like, uh, you know, the, 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 the way that played out, the fact that it arose in China, suspicions that it may have been a lab leak and that they weren't transparent about that. And the fact that this happened in the context of like the Trump administration within which there were people who really wanted to maximally exploit this. So there, there's all that recently, but if we go back further and, and trace the kind of decline of relations uh, back even earlier than 2010, how would you characterize, like, what has happened and why?
1: Mm. So, a lot of parts to your question. I think that you know relations were you know deteriorating, or or I should say they were more and more characterized by this uh, kind of hedging or security uh, dynamic. Uh, you know, really, you know, of course you know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was the, you know, no longer a shared security threat that both were confronting. There was a bit of a reprieve during, you know, after nine eleven when the United States was focused on the war on terror, and China was sort of a back burner issue. I think as that started to fade, or the United States became, you know, more alarmed by China's, especially China's island building in the South China Sea, um, you know, there was, I think, where they want to date it to the late Obama administration. A growing concern about the direction that China was headed in. Um, things got a lot, lot worse. I would say under the Trump administration, where the Trump administration first, you know, unleashed the the trade war. Um, you know, really trying to use this kind of muscle to kind of force China to kind of reset the terms mm-hmm. of our economic engagement. Um, and that you know did bear fruit, sort of, in the Phase One deal, which sort of kind of temporarily, uh, you know, created a plateau. But as you said, I think COVID really uh, sort of unleashed a new dynamic where, you know, suddenly in a year where the Trump administration was campaigning for re-election, there was this, you know, catastrophic pandemic, which had originated in China, even though, uh, you know, there's still little, uh, I think, good evidence that this was anything but a naturally uh, arising uh, pathogen. So the, but that, that finger pointing, you know, which had, to some extent, on the Chinese side, you know, predated the pandemic, This whole warrior diplomacy was, mm-hmm. I think, really, you know, touched off by Xi Jinping's, uh, you know, exhortation to Chinese diplomats to, you know, dare to struggle and be good at fighting, uh, believing that, you know, the United States would only respect strength and would, uh, you know, exploit signs of weakness. Now, I think it's quite unfortunate, I think, that this kind of, you know, Boastful and uh, kind of vituperative uh, Twitter diplomacy um, is really a bad look for China. Uh, it's a bad look for any government that wants to engage in mocking others. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly is is not cultivating a lovable image, as, as Xi Jinping has more more recently said that China should cultivate. But uh, you know, it's a desire to be, you know, to take others down a peg, I think, and, uh, you know, and make China look good by comparison. But it's really this going on the negative um, mm-hmm. that, you know, has not played well, certainly amongst developed democracies. You know, public opinion polls suggest that, you know, China's reputation is sort of at an all time low. But I don't know, you know, in, amongst the you know, developing world, uh, it's it's less clear that this has been so mm-hmm. um, uh, mm-hmm. so repugnant. So, you know, China today is, you know, doing a lot better, I think, in, in much of the developing world, playing to some of the their kind of longstanding resentments about uh, the United States and other you know, privileged nations kind of taking advantage uh, of others um, and really mm-hmm. wielding their power and privileges at the expense of
0: others. So the militant tone may be working with one audience and not with another. That's right. Um, that's interesting. Um to what extent do you think some of this, including the regional military assertiveness, was a, a, maybe not an inevitable, but a, a likely and in some ways natural consequence of China's just growing power, right? I mean, it's an emerging power and emerging powers historically have thrown their weight around. The U.S. did. Uh, and uh, so, you know, how how much of it is kind of that? Like, don't expect it to change. Uh, it, it was coming all along
1: there's definitely an element of that. I think the question though remains is how could China use its power in ways to maximize its efficacy while minimizing resistance and the mm-hmm. way that China has been throwing around its weight really to, to deter opposition has also created uh, i think you know real fear and suspicion that you know, um, similarly you know to show any sign of weakness, it's just to invite more bullying and that what needs to what one needs to do around the region of the United States is to stand up to China. Um, And that's not the reaction that I think a rising power is, you know, would want to see. Uh, And so to the extent that there are voices inside China that say this isn't a great, this isn't a great strategy. Um, It's because of this. It's because of the fear that that China's actions have created around the region.
0: Yeah. Well it sounds like one thing the two Countries' foreign policies have in common is the right now, I think, is the idea that uh, you know, strength and 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 forceful deterrence is what matters. And uh diplomacy can be taken as a sign of weakness. Unfortunately,
1: I think there is that mirroring dynamic, but both sides then are missing the fact that deterrence requires an equal dose of reassurance, that you give the other countries a real choice, which is that if uh, you know, if they don't act in whatever way, that they won't be exploited, and that I think that component of reassurance has really has really been uh, missing. Okay,
0: um, I guess may, maybe a final question. You know, I was uh, I, I'm sure you're aware of this book. Uh, what is it? Danger Zone is that the mm-hmm. name of it by Hal Brands mm-hmm. and Michael Beckley. I had I had them on my show, discuss the book with them. Uh, you know, they're of course. Uh, you know, China hawks, uh, as I got them to agree during the course of the conversation. <laughs> um, and uh, they, they emphasize the 2008 financial collapse, which was, you know, originated in the West, in America, in the, in the subprime mortgage market, uh, in the securities, you know, the, the securities market, um, as being a threshold. And as, as I guess, as they see it, China kind of woke up and really realize that well you know the West is really not omnipotent and 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 uh, and they really screw up and uh you know maybe maybe we can you know maybe this is our moment to to uh to rise or something like that was two thousand and eight a big big deal you think in in Chinese psychology
1: I think it was a big deal, not just because the you know global financial crisis really took the you know the luster off of the you know the western Model of 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 development and market economics. It was mm-hmm. also a big year because it was the year of the Beijing Olympics. Um, you know, and riots in Tibet, which really you know shown a spotlight uh, on China's human rights abuses and created a lot of antibodies and the sense in China that uh, you know the, its rise wasn't uh, as welcome as uh, they might have thought. Mm-hmm. And so this combination of you know having less. Uh, sense of there's something that China could learn from the west as well as a sense of and uh, disrespect um and the need to show uh you know show pride and, and to to demonstrate china's strength uh, even in the face of adversity, i think were important components of what took place in two thousand and
0: eight mm-hmm. okay now, i assume you've see, you've uh if not read their book, you're familiar with the argument I, um, change danger yeah. zone any yeah. any any uh, one-minute book review you want to deliver?
1: Also, I haven't read the book, but I've read the versions of the art argument in various
0: articles. I think
1: mm-hmm. the most important thing is that I don't see, uh, you know, demographic, you know, decline in China as necessarily leading to China lashing out in the way that they, mm-hmm. I think, predict. Um, and there's just really no evidence, um, you know, from you know past uh, Chinese foreign policy behavior that domestic. Uh, discontent or challenges has led to more aggressive foreign policy behavior, one. And then two, there's a little evidence that Chinese decision makers think that their best days are behind them. Um, Their rhetoric all points in the other direction, which is that time and momentum are in China's side, you know, the East is rising. Mm -hmm. So I I just, although, you know, they've, they're very smart folks, um, you know, and I have respect for them individually, I don't think that this argument is one that really ought to be
0: uh persuasive. Yeah, it's an interesting argument because traditionally the China Hawk argument had been China is, you know, rising, big, growing, more and more menacing. Theirs, their argument is, oh, it faces a ton of problems, demographic, economic, and so on. So it's going to get insecure and, and lash out. And that's why we need uh, you know military buildup and so on. So it's it's an right. unusual argument. Yeah. Yeah. Well thank you so much. Um is there anything uh, you want to add before you uh, I know you got to go right about now, but is there anything you want to? No, add to what thanks. You said?
1: Thanks for such a great and substantive conversation. It was a pleasure to be with
0: you. All right. Well, uh, appreciate your work. Yeah, where are you on Twitter? You want to give people a Twitter handle oh, yeah. or anything? What's sure, this?
1: sure. It's Jessica C. Weiss.
0: One word. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Bob.